And welcome in to this edition of Broadcaster Hour. I'm Roger Hoover coming to you from South Carolina. We've got Kyle Crooks on the far side of the screen from Florida. And in the center of the screen from Chicago, Illinois, we have Andy Mazur, the new play-by-play broadcaster for the Chicago White Sox on WGN Radio. And Andy, it's great to have you with us. How's everything going on the south side now? Hey, everything is good. Uh, we're getting ready for some more uh, warm weather here in Chicago, which is perfect because it's supposed to be baseball season. And kind of odd that we're starting at the end of July, but uh, we're getting ready to go. Yeah, we're only a week away from what will be opening day at Guaranteed Rate Field. And I'm sure you're excited for your first opening day as the play-by-play voice, the lead play-by-play broadcaster for the White Sox. But just what is this season going to be like for you guys uh, getting ready to call 60 games all from the same booth, even though a lot of times the White Sox will not be on the field below you? Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. Uh, we really don't know what to expect, um, you know, having to call the road games from the home booth and, uh, you know, 60 games as opposed to 162. So it's going to be interesting to see strategies. It's going to be interesting to see uh, how teams get off to whatever start they get off to, whatever kind of moves they're going to make. It's really anybody's game. I mean, it's just so hard to predict what's going to happen. I've been asked so many times, hey, do they have what it takes to get to the playoffs? I'm like, well, yeah, if they get off to a good start, Sure. Why not? I mean, I can see it happening. uh, There's a lot of other teams that are going to try to do the same thing. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you may end up finding a team that uh, you never thought was going to be in the mix to actually be in the mix because they got hot and their pitchers got some confidence and their their offense came to life. And again, who knows? It's going to be it's going to be interesting. But I tell you what, we're going to approach it the same way uh, that we did for 162. I'm doing the same prep. I'm I'm getting ready to do uh, an exhibition game on Sunday. Strangely enough, it's going to be at Wrigley Field, and we'll be eight miles down the road calling the same calling the game from the other ballpark. So, but uh, you know, I'm getting ready for that, and I, I'm just going to look at it as this: you know, it's still a nine-inning baseball game, uh, you know, ten innings if with the with the runner at second base, which would be hard to get used to uh, for this year. But uh, yeah, we're just going to do it the same. I mean, it's uh, it's it's baseball, and it's uh, and it's it's a lot of fun. How do you expect it's going to go when you're calling those road games off the monitor and you're trying to judge fly balls and just little different things of the actual play-by-play that are going to be so different? And it's going to take a radical adjustment, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to take a lot because, you know, luckily I was able to do a couple of these types of broadcasts uh, when I worked for the Big Ten Network back in uh, 2015 and 16. We didn't travel with baseball or softball. Did all our games from the studio in Chicago. But it was a great setup because you had a big program monitor in front of you. And then to the right, just to the right of it, there was a, a monitor that had all the cameras. So I could see the cameras moving. Uh, and if I, had a tr- if I had trouble picking up the ball on the program monitor, I could, finally, I could find it on the other one. And I could find the runners on the other one. So I'm not exactly sure what the setup is going to be. There's been a lot of talk about different things that we're going we're gonna to get. I think we're going to get a two-monitor setup. I, I don't know what's going to be on the one monitor. Uh, MLB is doing what it can. I mean, I know they have a, they have a staff broadcast program kind of like that that uh, we're going to be able to have in the booth, and they say within a split second, uh, we're going to be able to read what's going on at the ballpark. So in case you miss something, you could go right to it and then go, uh, you know, all all Ronald Reagan on it and pretend like you saw it and uh, and call it from what you see on the screen. Uh, it's going to take a little adjusting, I have a feeling. But you know, I was telling people we had a it was interesting. We had a Zoom call with all the American League uh, broadcasters the other day because everybody was kind of concerned. And, you know, I mentioned the fact that I had done this stuff for the for Big Ten Network and people were asking me a bunch of questions. And I said, listen, here's the here's the one thing we have going for us with no fans in the stands. You don't have to beat the roar of the crowd to the play. So you can actually sit back and almost like you're doing TV, sit back maybe a couple extra seconds just to make sure you got the play right before you actually have to call it. Because there's not going to be fan. There's not going to be fans uh, screaming or reacting to it in the background. So 
if there's one grace or saving grace of that whole thing with no fans being allowed in the stands, that might be it. And watching a lot of the inter-squad games, they have that fake crowd noise piped in, and, and it does sound normal. Just having, I think I saw Joe Davis tweet this out the other day, just having that hum underneath, it sounds, you don't even notice it. Is that something that's going to be pumped into both the TV and the radio broadcast? That's something that you welcome, just the, the fake crowd noise you're going to have? Yeah, I think they're going to do it at the ballparks. I think MLB is kind of mandating that uh, the teams do it, and I think there's actually going to be somebody whose job it is to appropriately react so i don't know how quickly that's going to be done or or how accurately or how it's going to sound but you know even for those games at the big 10 network i always asked our producer to pump the crowd uh, the just the murmur into my headphones because you know then, then you felt like you were there and you know it's going to be really strange when you're looking out at a field and there's nobody on it and you're calling a game so i mean as more normal as they can make it i'm all for it but again i don't want it to sound stupid i want it to because people that are listening they know there's no fans in the crowd I mean, everybody knows. Everybody's heard the news. Uh, you know, it's been that way for a, a few months. So, I mean, it, it, it's almost counterproductive. But at the same time, I can see why they want to make it somewhat normal to people who are are watching or listening. Because, you know, it, there's always this, you know, the trap that a broadcaster will fall into. And, and you guys know what I'm talking about. With, it, with If there's a dead audience out there, you know, there's no crowd noise or anything like that. You, you tend to talk so much because you want to cover that up. Well, you don't have to do that in baseball because it's such a long, drawn-out situation. So even if there's no crowd noise, I'm going to take some breaks. I mean, I just, I just, just the way I do things, and I think it's just the way that uh, you know baseball fans get used to guys that are calling games the way they call it. So if it's there, great. If it's not there, I, it's business as usual as far as I'm concerned. A little bit later on, we'll really dive into your prep under normal circumstances for a Major League Baseball game. But uh, just right now, with what it's going to be like uh, both home and road for the White Sox and what a broadcaster is able to do, how does that change your preparation coming up on a daily basis? Well, it's it's interesting because I, I you know we're not allowed in the clubhouse, so I don't have any uh, personal interaction with with any of these players. The only interaction we have, uh, and the team's been doing a great great job with this. I mean, they have the manager and at least one, maybe even two, sometimes three players after the workouts or after the inter-squad game on Zoom. And we never have to hang up. I mean, they're just simultaneous. So, you know, I'm listening to that kind of stuff. But, you know, there, there are questions that I want to ask that aren't really appropriate for the, the large setting because I don't want to give away a lot of the stuff that I'm thinking about that maybe using on the air. So what we're trying to do right now is we're trying to work it out with, uh, with those, the powers that be, especially with the manager, you know, at least to get some kind of an audience with him, whether it be on Zoom or from 18 feet away, I don't care, you know, just to be able to get some information. Because as you guys know, I mean, you, you need to know which players are, are dinged up. You, you, so you don't criticize a guy for for not hustling down the line at first. You need to know which pitchers he's trying to stay away from that day so that if it comes up and that guy's spot is there and he doesn't go to him, I mean, at least we know. So we can kind of head off the criticism at the pass. And that's that's really important to me because I, I, you know, I want our guys to know that we're knowledgeable about our team and that we have this information because we're doing our homework. So it's going to make it a little more challenging. But you know what? I mean, we have to adapt. I mean, it's just the kind of thing it is. I mean, to complain about it is absolutely counterproductive because it's just going to drag you down. So I'm looking at it this way. We're going to we're exploring uncharted territory here. So we have a real good chance now to do some excellent broadcasts because we're pretty much the only game in town when it comes to folks sitting in their cars. I mean, that that's it. I mean, you can't come to the game. You're not going to be watching TV from your car. So, I mean, we have the opportunity really now to, to seize upon the audience and do the best possible job we can 
under the circumstances, we just got to we have to roll with it. And for you, uh, you get to step into this lead play-by-play role with the White Sox under some bittersweet circumstances with Ed Farmer passing away in April. Uh, just what did you learn about being around Ed the last few years in your role as a pre- and the post-game host uh, with the White Sox? And uh, just what did you really enjoy the most about getting to be around him? Yeah, I mean, you're right. But they're bittersweet for sure because, uh, you know, we'd love to have Ed around. His name is on the booth. It's going to stay on the booth, and it's his booth, you know. So, I mean, I, I have no qualms with that, no no problems with that at all because Ed – uh, in the in the short time that I really knew him was excellent to me. I mean, he could have been anyway. I mean, he knew that I had done this before and that it was something that I still wanted to do. He could have he could have felt threatened. He could have felt any way he wanted to. But he was pure class and just pure. Uh, he's just fun to be around. He is he was one of a kind. I mean, if you never got to meet him, it's a shame because uh, you know you, they don't make him like him. I mean, he was old school through and through. I mean, a kid that grew up on the South Side. Uh, going to White Sox games at Old Comiskey Park, having a chance to pitch for them, representing them in the All-Star game, and then going ahead and uh, becoming the broadcaster for this club for so long that, you know, he is synonymous with the White Sox. And I, and I know that. And, you know, the thing I probably learned the most from him uh, was probably nothing to do with the broadcast aspect of things. It was more the way that he dealt with people and just the the, the way that he was generous with his time and with, with advice and anything. And I've told this story a million times, and I'm going to say it, tell it a million and one. I mean, Ed was the kind of guy who would give you the shirt off his back and at the same time would be mad at you for not asking for the shirt because he really wanted to give you the shirt, and he would be pissed if you didn't. So, I mean, it, it, he he was just uh, the, the kind of person that you, you really enjoyed being around. Um, I had met him, quote-unquote met him, when I was working with the Cubs. Uh, it was the Interleague Series. We came there, I believe it was 2005. And I was working with Pat Hughes and Ron Santo. And Ron, of course, uh, with diabetes, had both legs amputated below his knee, was wearing prosthetics. And we were there in the middle of the summer. It was hot. And it was really, really massively hot out there. And I'll never forget Ed coming into our booth, just checking on Ron, making sure he was okay, making sure he had drinks, making sure he had food, making sure the air conditioning was right. The channel on the TV was turned to the right place. You know, they had a little system because the sun used to shine off the countertop right in your face so they would put like folders down manila folders down on the on the counter on the countertop to make sure that the glare wasn't so bad and he would come in to make sure that everything was good i mean he didn't have to do that i mean he's he's broadcasting for the other club first of all and you know what, what's he doing and i never forgot that and you know the first day that i really officially met him i reminded him about that and he was impressed that i remembered and as i've grown to find out you know over the last couple of years that's just ed what were your years with the cl- the Cubs like and working with another legend, Pat Hughes? Yeah. And being in that pre and post role, you get to physically watch these guys go to work. So what did you learn from Pat over at Wrigley? You know, I learned a lot more from Pat than I really even believed that I did because, you know, <laughs> you hear people enough and then you go and do this for yourself and then you start hearing them in you. Um, so, you know, you have to obviously make it your own. But uh, the way that Pat approaches things, you know, is 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 prep and he is knowledgeable. He is a student of the game. And if there's situations, you know, that uh, that come about, you need to know the rules because he was always on top of that stuff. You know, he would be like, wait, wait, you know, that, that you know, that's a violent, you know, and he would just he would call it out during his play by play because he knew so much about the game and about the rules and, and everything. So I, I kind of took that. And, you know, the other thing that really stuck with me that I didn't realize stuck with me until I got to San Diego was his reverence for Ron Sano and treating an icon with absolute respect and kick gloves. I mean, because, you know, Ron made tons of mistakes. And, you know, Ron was 
not prepared for a lot of things, but nobody cared because Ron was just there because he was the ultimate Cubs fan and people loved him. And, and, you know, Pat treated him so well and carried him through broadcast sometimes and set him up so well that, you know, it was it was really appreciated by a lot of Cubs fans because they would say to him, hey, we appreciate you taking care of number 10, you know. And so when I go to San Diego, I've got two guys that have been there over 30 years when I get there and Ted Leitner and, and Jerry Coleman. And I find that, you know, Jerry Coleman is revered almost in the same light as Santo was in Chicago in San Diego. And, you know, toward the end of Jerry's life, I mean, I actually called the last game with him that he ever called in in, uh, in September of 2013. And, you know, I was doing a lot of games with him only. And I found myself being Pat, you know, saying, all right, I know he's not prepared. Doesn't matter. Nobody out there cares that he's not prepared. So I shouldn't be bothered by it. I'm going to pull him through. I'm going to make him laugh. I'm going to, you know, get him off his game every once in a while. And and it worked. I mean, it worked really well. And I had to do the same thing when I came here to, to the White Sox booth because Ed's in the same vein. I mean, Ed is that same guy. And the games that I got to work with Ed, it was the same way around. So, you know, to kind of circle back, I mean, yeah, Pat taught me a lot about not just play-by-play, but just about how you work with your color commentator, how you bring in other people, and how you uh, get prepared for a game and, and call it to the best of your ability. You're going to make mistakes. He's very self-deprecating. I find myself to be that way as well because if you can't laugh at yourself, you can't laugh at someone else's expense either. And we know that these are live broadcasts and that if you make a mistake, there's nothing you can do about it but just either make fun of it or move on. How long did it take you to find that personality factor in a broadcast? Because that's so important. When we're coming out, a lot of us sound almost robotic and, Mm -hmm. and a caricature of a broadcaster. How long did it take for you to to find what you should sound like on the air? You know, it was probably 2008, I got to be honest with you, because uh, I started doing a little fill-in play-by-play on the Cubs network in 03, uh, and 03 through 06 is when I left, and then I started in San Diego in 2007. And, you know, when I got to San Diego, like I said, there were three, there were two guys in the booth already that had been there a total of like 65 years, and, you know, and Jerry had been there as a manager before that, and, you know, in the front office, and it's just like, okay, well, what am I getting myself into here? <clears throat> I kind of felt almost like I shouldn't be personable if that makes any any sense because i didn't want to take away from what these guys were doing because people were so used to them and they weren't used to me and it was a mistake uh, i mean fully admit it was a mistake because i, I was getting killed i was getting crushed you know the new guys get crushed anyway because you know you're you're new and you're not what they're used to and in my case i came from a big city and you know san diego uh, they want their own they want people that are, are familiar with everything that they have i mean i i studied i knew it wasn't even about that. It was just, the, it was just the, you know, it was a strange voice to them. And, and I thank Ted and Jerry for, for welcoming me because again, they could have, you know, made it really tough on me, but they were great. And I think in 2008, I finally decided, you know what? I, I can't hold back. I got to just do what I do. And, you know, I've got a lot of sarcasm built into me. I've got some personality built into me. It's not always the funniest thing. You can ask my girlfriend. Uh, she, she laughs and that's why, you know, I think that's why she, I, you know, she's still with me, I think, but, um, it's a good audience, but you know, it's, it's one of those kind of things where, you know, you have to start to do it and you have to figure out a way to make it that it fits in the broadcast and it's not coming at the expense of any game. Uh, you know, you do it in situations where you can do it. And obviously you shut up when you, when it's a close game and it's, you know, the eighth or the ninth inning and it's uh, the time runs at second base. You're not going to be, you know, making any puns or doing anything stupid, but you know, I just, I look at it this way now. I mean, I just, I sit up in the booth and whatever comes to my mind, you know, I, it, there's a little bit of a filter, but then, you know, it goes out and, you know, I, I'm thankful that DJ, 
uh, Darren Jackson, who I'm working with, uh, he and I have had a chance to work together a couple times, more than a couple, about 35 times last year. Unfortunately, when I got sick, and he's the same kind of guy. And, you know, we'll, we'll sit there and bust on each other. But at the same time, it's just like we're calling a game. And I trust him implicitly to analyze situations because the game that he played the game at a high level. And he trusts me to make the calls so that he can come in. So it's a it's a great it's a great little relationship that he and I have developed over a real short period of time. And, uh, you know, that's something I'm looking forward to as well, getting going. Andy, going back a few steps to your college days, you went to Bradley University, and did you start doing some play-by-play then? What were some of your uh, earliest play-by-play moments, and how did you start to build up some reps? You know, basically, my earliest reps were in high school, believe it or not. I had a radio station in my high school at Maine East High School in, in Park Ridge, Illinois, and I was doing baseball, I was doing basketball, I was doing football. I mean, obviously, it was it was pretty bad. It was, it was really, really rough, but we were doing it. And, you know, I, I got a chance a couple of times in college uh, to get hired to do a couple of high school tournaments that were uh, being hosted in Peoria and they were looking for Bradley students to do it. And, you know, through my association with the school, I got a couple of uh, opportunities to do that. You know, my path kind of skewed just because, you know, I tell a lot of people just to get on the air whenever you can, just to make yourself, uh, at least you can get some tape and people can actually hear what you sound like on the air. And I ended up uh, in a whole different realm. I ended up starting off in uh, in top forty radio, believe it or not. I was doing I was a DJ for for quite a long time, and uh, <laughs> it's kind of hard to explain how I got into it. But in Peoria, they they had a building uh, in in town. It was a CBS affiliate. It had an AM station, an FM station, and a TV station all in the same complex. It was like down the hall from each other. And at one point, I don't know how it happened, but I had four different time cards for four part-time jobs. It was AM, FM, TV, and copywriting. So I'd be walking up to the time card, and this was literally when you punched a card. I mean, you into the clock, and it was like standing there, boom, boom, and then I had to do another one. So I could go down to do my other job. So sometimes on Saturdays, I was there doing a, a shift on the AM station from 10 until 2. And the AM station was kind of like a full-service station, but they played a lot of uh, sleepy elevator music. But it was a lot of opportunity just to talk, which is which was good. And then I go across the hall to do the top 40 station and do that for four hours from two to six. And then I would take a dinner break and then I'd go down into the newsroom and floor direct for the 10 o'clock news. So I would tell the talent which cameras to look at. I would run the teleprompter. And, you know, by the time I was done, I mean, I'd been there for 12 hours and I didn't care because it was some of the best times that I've ever had in the business, not making any money. We were around a lot of people that were you know, my age and in, in similar situations people to go out with, people to, uh, to go have drinks with. And it was it was a lot of fun. So it eventually morphed into uh, full-time top 40 DJ overnights and then nights. And then I left Peoria to come back to Chicago. And what I did, I worked for an outfit that was uh, called Metro Networks. And it was basically a warehouse for those of us that were doing traffic reports for various Chicago stations. We were doing weather reports, news reports, sports reports. And I did traffic uh, on one of the old all news stations here, and it was back during the OJ trials. So I was in a perfect spot. I was doing midday traffic, and I made it. I maybe did like three traffic reports in my entire shift because they were carrying the OJ trial live. But uh, there was a guy in that building, uh, Jeff Joniak, who is the now the voice of the Bears, who was the sports director for that outfit. And I kept bugging him. I'm like, listen, you got to give me a chance to get on the air to do sports. This is what I want to do. I know what I'm doing. I know you get it. I know you want to hear it. I'll give you an audition tape. He's like, okay, well, give me an audition tape once, one time a week and, you know, make sure there's sound bites in there. And it wasn't as easy as it today. We didn't have the computers to drop sound bites. And I actually literally have to, had to record stuff off my VCR and then 
put it into a tape recorder and then get it over to another uh, another area and fire it while I was doing it. So it was not easy, but I did I did I was bugging him to the point where I was doing three or four of those audition tapes a week, and he was getting so far behind that he finally just said, "Okay, I'm going to put you on uh, seven to ten on uh, WBBM, which was an all new station here as well." I did one shift there, and he liked it. And I was doing, uh, from that point on, I was doing weekends on the old WMAQ, which was where the uh, sports radio station is located now. But I was working seven days a week, didn't care. Uh, that kind of evolved into me doing some stuff at uh, what was then one-on-one sports radio. I think it evolved into Yahoo Sports Bleacher Report. I don't even know what it is now, but it was sporting news at one point. But I worked with them when they were here in Chicago. And then, my, and then I found out about the job at GN, and got that, and that's where I really wanted to be. So uh, I left there and started there in 99, and then just, you know, kind of from there, here we are. Here you are, and now you're back on WGN getting to call the White Sox games there. And there are a lot of different paths to baseball play-by-play, and a lot of people say you got to go to the minors and kind of pay your dues there. A lot of people say go to the flagship station of the team you want to work for and just work your way up from there. Once you got through the door yep. at WGN, what were some of the steps you took to eventually get to Wrigley Field and get to work with Pat and Ron? Yeah, it's uh, interesting. I mean, uh, it was basically that that second round you talked about because you know I got in there and I was the only sports reporter that they had at the time, so I was charged with doing the weekend uh, pre and post game shows, and then during the week I was reporting on the team. So I'd be in the field. I would you know I would send back whatever uh, the manager had to say at that point, whatever player. I used to do some of the interviews. So you know I started slowly getting in with some of the players, and and you know it, it became a lot more comfortable. So that eventually, you know, our our guy that was doing the night show was doing some TV work as well. So I ended up doing a bunch of uh, the night pregame shows. My boss, uh, Dave Ennett, was doing the weekday day, day, day game starts. And he's also the sports director at the radio station. So there was a lot of times where things would come up and he'd say, hey, can you can you fill in for me? And I'd be like, yeah, absolutely. No problem. So, you know, being in a booth for that many times during a week and I would sit in the booth during the game, I would help out Pat and Ron. I would I would listen to the overhead uh, speaker and, sit and tell them what the, the scoring decisions were, what the subs were. I'd look up stuff for them and it just kind of became, they looked to me and I was in the booth and I was a familiar face to these guys and a trustworthy face because I never would really steer them in a wrong direction. So the trust factor started to build. And then, you know, when Santo got sick the first time, uh, John McDonough, who was the marketing director at the time that went on to the, be the president of the Cubs and the Blackhawks said, listen, we want to send you on the road to kind of keep an eye on Ron just to make sure that everything's okay. And if it's not, you know, you can get the people that need to be there to take care of him and you can also fill in for him. And I said, great. So that was really the start of it. Cause at that point the station figured, well, why are we doing pregame shows from the studio when you're there? So I ended up doing all the, the, the pre and post game shows from the road. And then, you know, it morphed into the a little time on the air during, during play by play. And then, you know, again, the rest, uh, as they say, is history. How did you morph that 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 fill in play by play opportunity with the Cubs pre and post then to San Diego and, and the next point I guess in my question would be how tough was the the move and moving to a whole different part of the country trying to learn a new team a new fan base knowing that people are going to be critical of the new guy coming in how did you handle all of that Yeah it's interesting I mean you know I was only doing if you I don't know if you guys realize but I was only doing 3 outs for every time I filled in for Pat it wasn't even a full inning. It was a half an inning. And at that point, I would have taken two outs. I mean, you don't, you don't turn it down, obviously. And it was rough at the beginning. And, you know, eventually, as the, the years kind of went by, I, I started to get better with reps. 
and found enough tape to, to put together to, to send out to San Diego. It was a long process, uh, three interviews to, to, to get the gig. And, um, you know, as far as when I got it, yeah, it was a little bittersweet because, you know, I grew up here and I had never lived outside of the state of Illinois. And I was about to turn 40 when I got the job. And I thought to myself, all right, well, if not now, when? I mean, you, you gotta, <laughs> you're getting an opportunity that only certain amount of people in the entire world are getting to do, uh, get your rear end out there and, and take whatever comes your way. And yeah, it was nerve wracking a little bit, you know, moving out there, not knowing a soul, uh, you know, learning a different team, learning everything about it, you know, closing up a house here, you know, moving out there. And it was, it was different. It was difficult at times, but I wouldn't change any of it because, you know, even though it didn't work out the way I wanted it to work out in San Diego, it taught me a lot. You know, it taught me a lot about how to uh, deal with disappointment. And I still need to learn a little bit better how to deal with disappointment because I'm a human being and I still take some of it personally, even though I shouldn't, because it was nothing that I did. You know, it was more of a, a business thing when a third ownership group came in and, and did whatever they wanted to do. I mean, I, you know, I would still be out there if it wasn't for that. I, I, I really feel, but you know, that that's, it's the kind of thing you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, listen, Again, if you're not going to do it now, you're not you're never going to do it. And this is an opportunity that you can't pass up. So I took it. And yeah, the first you know the first year was a little rough, like I said. But you know, after that, uh, you know, fans really started to take to me a little bit. I was very active on social media. I was very active uh, in the uh, the Twitterverse and also with the you know the advent of uh, podcasting and all that kind of stuff. I was doing a lot of their podcasts with them and you know recognizing them. You know, luckily. You know, I, I, I have an easy time recognizing people. Sometimes I don't remember their names all the time, but, you know, I at least know that I know them. And I, I think that, you know, that kind of uh, ingratiated me a little bit with uh, with a fan base out there. So it, it was tough getting acclimated. But, you know, once you once you do something long enough and once you're there long enough, it's it's just like, uh, you know, riding a bike. You get up in the morning, you have breakfast, you go to the ballpark, you call a game, you come home. I mean, it's just uh, it's just kind of as simple as that. And you mentioned in there, and it's important, and it's an important part of your story and many broadcasters' story, that the disappointment of sometimes situations are out of your control, but it's how you handle it and turn that into a positive. You, you go back to Chicago, you land back with WGN, and you get an, another major league opportunity with the White Sox. How did you turn that negative into a positive? Yeah, that's that's a, the question for the ages, because you know what? I, I don't think I handled myself real well at the beginning during that whole thing. Uh, you know, it came to an end finally in January of 14, but it had been brewing since the start of the 12 season. I mean, there were some things going on behind the scenes that, you know, were really angering me. And I had a hard time kind of disguising that anger. I generated at a couple of people and I would tell everybody and anybody who would ask me who the people were. And it was probably not the right way to do it. No, not probably. It was the wrong way to do it. Um, because you never know who knows the person you're ripping on and it makes you look bad. It makes you look petty, makes you look stupid, makes you look small. And I know that now, uh, obviously I didn't know it then. And it was a nice lesson to learn from somebody out there that I really trusted that I worked for at the uh, university. When I was doing some basketball games at the university of San Diego told me at a lunch, uh, a lunch engagement, he said, you need to just shut your mouth. And I looked at him, I'm like, what are you talking? He goes, Everything you're saying is getting right back to this guy because everybody in town knows him. And every, you know, I go, mm. it was kind of an awakening. And I was like, yeah, I guess I'm not doing myself any favors by making myself look that way. 
didn't know it now. Didn't know it then. Certainly know it now. Um, you know, the only thing I was really angry about uh, was the timing of the whole thing because it really prevented me from trying to look for another job in in the majors because it was a week, you know, two weeks before pitchers and catchers were reporting that uh, that had happened. But you know, listen, they they do. Uh, you have to learn that when a, when somebody owns a team, they can do whatever the hell they want to do with that team, from the pitcher to the washroom attendant to the the broadcaster. They can do whatever the hell they want. And until you realize that, you know, you're going to be an angry person. Yeah, I was kind of angry when I came back. But the moral of the story is I left WGN the first time on really good terms. Um, they were very happy for me and the opportunity that I got in San Diego. I offered to to help them in their search. They were very appreciative of that because it was kind of late in the game. And I kind of left them a little bit in the lurch. So I felt kind of bad about it. And I really wanted to, to provide some assistance. I was available to the person that they hired, Corey Provis. Um, I had about a two and a half, three hour conversation with him before their first spring training game, just to make sure he was on board and, and knew exactly what he had to do to get, uh, you know, Ron, whatever Ron needed to get Pat, whatever Pat needed and to be you know himself in the booth. So I had about a three hour conversation with him about that. And we still talk about that to this day when we, when we bump into each other. But I think that, you know, you had to leave that first job on that good of terms to be able to come back. I had no idea when this thing ended what I was going to do. Um, so logically, I reached out to the, my, my radio family in Chicago. And lo and behold, they needed somebody because the guy that was doing Cubs pre and post at the time was also doing Blackhawks pre, post and intermission. And he was going to stay with the, the Cubs until the Blackhawks maybe made it to the Stanley Cup final. So I was pressed into du- uh, duty during, uh, during the hockey season. And I had never done hockey. I'm a huge hockey fan. But you guys know being a fan and doing the job is completely a, a different animal. So, I mean, I, luckily I was tutored by uh, one of the former great Blackhawks, Troy Murray, who's our color analyst. And I laid myself on the mercy of his court by saying, listen, if I'm asking you fanboy questions, you got to slap me because I don't want to be fanboy. I want to be broadcast boy. And, you know, he was telling me. And most of the time he was like, you're good. You're good. So it was it was nice. But, you know, again, moral of the story is this. You know, you just got to you kind of have to kind of go about your business and realize now in some cases it is you you know i mean sometimes unfortunately it it comes down to the fact that somebody doesn't like the way you broadcast or somebody doesn't like your style or somebody doesn't like uh, what you said and yeah okay well then that's you know something you gotta look in the mirror about in situations like i went through you know is completely an ownership decision based on somebody that they wanted to bring in and yeah did i handle it poorly at the time absolutely do i know that now yes will i ever do that again no lesson learned yeah, one of the things, I think I saw it in an STAA Q&A that you had had in the clip eventually went on YouTube and they talked about that transition and you mentioned that uh, in those first few months, there before you would leave the house, before you did anything, you would do a couple of things to really make sure you're working on your craft at the time, whether that's updating your resume, you know, looking at some clips, updating demo reels, things like that. Just how much of that helped you propel yourself into those future opportunities you did get? Well, I think it did a lot because, you know, I had to look at my resume and I had to figure out, okay, well, what, what am I going to feature here? You know, I'm not going to go all the way back to the Cubs because, you know, that's old news at this point. So, you know, I had to really kind of beef up the, the San Diego stuff to, you know, really be considered for anything here. And, you know, I wanted to make sure I had the best stuff. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't missing something. I had time. So instead of going out and, you know, hitting golf balls, which I did a lot, just, you know, to relieve stress and to take pictures like you see behind me. I mean, that was kind of my, my solace and my, my uh, get away from the, get the whole, the whole situation. 
um, yeah, I had to I had to spend time on it because I wasn't done. I mean, I was not done by any stretch of the imagination. I may have felt it every once in a while, like, okay, well, that was a, it was a great run, you know. Let's go find out what you're going to do next. And yeah, I mean, even in the time between 2014 and 2018, when when the station got the White Sox again, you know, I wasn't full time at the radio station. I actually took a job with a with a f- photography company, and was going out and shooting high school sporting events and yearbook pictures. I went to, and taught at the uh, Illinois Media School here. I taught a, a, a broadcasting class, sports broadcasting class, with a couple of other guys. So, you know, I was trying to find other ways to, you know, to spark my brain and, and, and things like that. But basically, at the end of the day, what it came down to is you got to do what, uh, you know, what I'm supposed to do. And what I'm supposed to do is is broadcast games. And that's what I wanted to, to be. So I had to get back with the, you know, with the station, I had to get back with the team. You know, I was sending out stuff left and right. You know, I kind of felt like at times I was being overlooked for things because of whatever. You know, you, you get conspiracy theories in your head. And that's where they are. They're in your head. I mean, it's just, okay, you're not qualified or they're going some other direction. I mean, you got you have to deal with it because if you don't, you're going to talk yourself into something else and you're going to talk yourself into something, doing something stupid. So I just tried to maintain and just kind of, keep a smile on my face as best as I could. Um, I trusted wholeheartedly the people that I was working with at WGN because I had worked with them all before. Uh, Dave Ennett, uh, one of my heroes in broadcasting, I mean, one of the best bosses, if not the best boss I've ever worked for because he hired you to do the job and trusted that you could do it and barely ever had to talk to you unless there was some huge problem. I never felt like I was being micromanaged or nitpicked. And, you know, he hired me not once but twice. So, I mean... I'm, I'm thankful and, and very grateful for, for him, you know, doing that for me. And, you know, now we get into the point where things start to open up and he knew that I was really interested in getting back into the, into the game. And when we got the White Sox, you know, they brought me in and said, okay, if you're going to do the pregame show only this first year, because, you know, we got guys we want to hear and this guy, I'm like, fine, pregame show only good. I can do, th- uh, do the pregame show and leave after, you know, three or four innings or make sure each team gets a hit. Cause I'm never going to miss a, a no hitter. I'm never going to leave a game before each team has a hit. Um, and then, you know, it eventually progressed into last year where I was doing an inning at home. And I did some road series. Uh, both those guys got some time off, so I was doing some road series. And then, unfortunately, like I said, Ed got sick, and uh, I filled in, and, and, you know, here we are. So, you know, it's it's a it's a long, riding uh, wave of a path that if someone asked me, uh, hey, what path would you use? I'm like, well, <laughs> heck if I know, because this is my path, and – it's going to be a lot different than your path, but you know, you just got to get into there and you got to do what feels right for you at that point. And I, I can't sit here and tell you that, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to go to this school. You need to do this internship. You got to do this. Then you got to say, okay, well, you know, let's go to the top 40 radio and then let's get back to Chicago. I mean, you, you can't do it. I mean, your guys path I'm sure is completely different than mine and it's supposed to be that way. Um, that's how you, you getting experiences along the way that are allowing me to tell you these stories of things that I, uh, that I picked up along the way. And for all the craziness, for all the quote unquote successes and for all the quote unquote disappointments, I've got a smile on my face, you know, because those are stories that I will cherish and I will keep with me. 
And along the way, you've gotten to see some cool things, even in the interim between the Padres and the White Sox. You had an opportunity to call some Loyola basketball just before uh, you know Loyola would have this legendary run. Sister Jean becomes a great celebrity. Did you have an inkling kind of calling those games that year that, hey, later on in March, this team could be dangerous? And they also broke my heart because I'm a Tennessee graduate, so uh, they broke my heart in that round. But did you kind of have a feeling that this would be a special year for those guys? You know, I was around the team only a few times. I mean, I actually filled in here and there on the TV broadcasts. Uh, I used to do their radio games before I left for San Diego. I did uh, every radio game home and away and then, you know, moved away. So they hired somebody else. And then, you know, they did some TV stuff and they already had some people in place. But there were some times where there were conflicts and I had to fill in. And uh, I'm still very close with the with the university. There. A couple of my really good friends still work over there. So I had a chance to to sit in there and do a couple of games. And, uh, you know, you could tell there was something going on. I mean, I don't, I don't think I could ever tell you that I would have ever expected them going to the final four. Um, I'm happy that they did. I mean, I tell you what, this city, Chicago really gravitated to that team. I mean, it was amazing to see the support that this city gave that team. I mean, there are buildings here that are normally reserved for let's go Hawks or go Cubs or go Sox or go bears that were go ramblers, you know, and it was the, the top of the Sears tower was lit up in maroon and gold. I mean, it's just like, this is pretty cool. Um, yeah, but I've seen a lot of interesting things along the way. And, uh, that being one of them, of course, and, you know, getting a chance, uh, my first year in San Diego with the university of San Diego, getting to the, the tournament and upsetting Connecticut in the first round in, in Tampa. I'm like, okay, well, this is kind of cool. Uh, I don't think I've ever really signed up for this, but hey, let's let's keep it rolling, you know? And uh, that first year in San Diego, I got to call one of the greatest games I think I've ever seen and called, the game 163 between the Padres and the Rockies, where Matt Holiday still hasn't touched home plate, not that I'm still bitter. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was one of those kind of things. You, you get to experience all these great things along the way. It's funny that year, too, the year of Loyola, they came to Florida and beat the Gators, and everyone was they up did. in a panic in the regular season. It was November, and everyone was saying, how could you lose to Loyola? Lo and behold, they go on and go on that run. But being a Chicago guy, how heavily mm-hmm. influenced when it came to basketball were you by Jim Durham? I, I grew up listening to him uh, on ESPN Radio and the uh, the NBA playoffs, the NBA finals. How much did he grow on you throughout the years? That is my guy. Uh, for basketball, he was the man. And I, he never, ever got his due as far as I was concerned. I thought he was one of the best basketball play-by-play guys on the radio that I still to this day have ever heard. Just the description, the authoritativeness of his voice, the cadence, the pacing. I, I hear myself saying foul line extended left, and it's him. That's him. You know, rimming, no, that's him. And it's all coming out of me because I heard the guy do it for so many years. You know, listening to Bulls games at night. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he uh, he was one of those guys that uh, I, I so enjoyed listening to games that he did just because of, of the energy and just the, the whole style that he brought to the table. And I really wish things would have worked out for him with the Bulls. He only got to see the one uh, NBA championship, and then there were some contract issues that uh, basically led him out to, uh, to ESPN Radio. I think he did some stuff with Dallas for a little while as well. And unfortunately, really passed away at a young age. And I, I met him in, in passing one time. Never really got a chance to, to really thank him and, and tell him how much I enjoyed uh, what he did. And I, I regret that. Uh, but you know, at the same time, I think that there's a lot of us, you know, that grew up in this area or grew up listening to him that carry on that, uh, those traditions and and some of the verbiage that uh, that he used. And I smile every time I hear myself saying it, just because 
I know exactly where it's coming from. It's coming from my one earpiece radio listening to the game at night on the West Coast when my parents think I'm asleep and uh, I'm listening to the basketball game on the radio. So I, I can't help but smile. But yeah, you're right. Jim Durham, to me, one of the best. And you mentioned his description. Let's get to baseball on the radio. And I've asked this to multiple baseball guys, and I like selfishly mm-hmm. to stack up their answers and just kind of yeah. compare and contrast. How descriptive do you like to get on a baseball radio call? What What is the line of, of enough and too much? That's a really good question. Uh, you know, with radio obviously being different than, than TV, um, you know, you don't have to be as descriptive, obviously, on TV because you can see it. But, you know, on radio, I like to try to paint the picture as best as I possibly can. I don't like to go completely overboard one way or underboard the other way. I try to, <laughs> I know it sounds like a cop out, but I try to keep it as, as in the middle as I can. You know, I like to tell you what direction he's moving. You know, if the, if the shortstop is moving to his left or his right, you know, off balance throw, if it's enough, if he's jump throw, I like to say jump throw. So that way, if the listener knows that it's a jump throw, it might not be a good throw to first. And then that sets up the dugout skillfully at first base by a brave. So it, it kind of all goes hand in hand. You know, I mean, I like to uh, I, I don't like to flower it up a little bit. I mean, I like to kind of keep it to the basics where, you know, I feel like listeners, you know, they're, they're smart people. I mean, I don't think they want to be overstimulated. I don't think they want to be understimulated. I think they just want enough to make sure that they can see it uh, in their minds. And, you know, that's what I try to I try to picture that. I actually, it's, it's interesting. Somebody asked me who I picture when I do the broadcast. And I picture a dad and a kid in a car driving around in the middle of nowhere using a baseball game as a talking tool between the two of them, uh, learning life lessons, life experiences, and that kind of thing. So I like to do a little teaching during the game uh, with the help of my color commentator, obviously. You know, if there's a rule that happens in the game, you know, you can't assume that every time someone turns on the radio that they're baseball fans. They're captive audience members in the in the car, you know, that they, they don't want to be there and they don't want to listen to this game, but they're forced to listen to the game. So you may as well teach them something if they're, you know, if they're sitting there listening, you may as well let them know that uh, the infield fly rule is this or, you know, that, uh, you know, ball four is, is a walk or whatever. You know, ground rule double is a ball that bounces here or gets trapped here. So, you know, I like to do a lot of teaching, but at the same time, that's where the storytelling comes in, because, you know, I was fortunate enough to grow up around baseball with my grandfather and and my father. Uh, you know, I played it just enough to love it. And enough to know that I couldn't do it for a living and wanted to be around it. So luckily for me, I had this other opportunity to stay in the game. But that's the kind of people I, I listen to, I, I think, that are listening to the game. I mean, I, it, it may be completely different, but that's that's the that's the I have it in my head. You know, I even have it down to the station wagon with wood paneling. You know, I mean, it's because that's what my dad and uh, my dad had at the time. So I, I, I kind of picture it. It's almost like picturing myself and my dad in the car. Uh, you know, driving. What did, what did we want to hear? Well, we wanted to hear about our favorite players. We wanted to hear some information about our favorite players. We wanted to know how our favorite players were doing. Uh, yeah, we wanted to know how the, the Cardinals were doing because we hated the Cardinals. I mean, that's just kind of the, you know, kind of the way it is. So, you know, I adapt that obviously to each city that I've broadcast in each town, each side of town here in Chicago that I've, I've broadcast in. But I, I try to keep it, you know, not to the point where it's it's fluff, but I don't want to undersell anything because to me it's really important for you as a broadcaster, especially in baseball and radio, they're not there. I mean, you have to be the eyes. You've got to be the ears. I like to notice things, you know, that a lot of people don't notice if there's like a glove exchange or if there's guys in the dugout messing around or, you know, those are the kind of things you can't see if you're sitting in your car. And I like to let them, I like to let the people see that. 
That's a really delicate balancing act, and it's also a balancing act, storytelling, like you mentioned, while also on radio, including your radio analysts, and especially with the guys you've worked with, some real legends of this mm-hmm. business, Ron Sano, Jerry Coleman, now uh, with DJ coming up uh, with the White Sox. How do you try to balance, you know, telling a cool story about Tim Anderson's first glove when he was a kid in Alabama versus making sure you're not going on and on and DJ's being silent? Yeah, I mean, so... I, I try to relate things back to him. I mean, if we talk about Tim Anderson's first glove, I'm going to say, hey, what was your first glove? You know, what, who, was, who was the first model? I'll give you a perfect example. We were in Detroit, and Al Kaline came to the booth before he passed away and asked us if we wanted balls signed by him. And Darren knew him from all the travels, and I had never met him. And he introduced me to, to Al Kaline. And the very first wooden baseball bat I had was an Al Kaline model. And I bat left-handed, and I throw right-handed, and I started telling him the story. I'm like, hey, you know, my, my, my dad got this for me for my birthday. I think I was seven or eight. It was the first ever wooden bat I had. And it was an Al Kaline model. And he was he got a big kick out of it. I mean, if he didn't, he was pretending like he did. And it was nice. So, you know, during the game, I wrote down on my scorebook, I wrote, it on, I wrote down Al Kaline. And I started talking about it. And, you know, DJ had heard the story, but then I took it a step further. I said, uh, you know, what was the first model of bat you had? You know, what was the most success you had? What, what, you know, who signed your glove? Who was, uh, you know, did you ever get an autograph? I mean, you can go so many different ways with that once you get into that story because, you know, know the ending because that certainly helps, especially if there's a double play turn with one out. You can, you can get out of it pretty quickly. But, you know, there's a lot of ways you can go with it and a lot of ways you can incorporate your guys. You know, it was a little tougher with Jerry because we were very generationally far apart. Um, and he liked to talk about Yogi Berra and Mickey Mantle. And, hey, he was around those guys. He was actually roommates with Mickey Mantle on the road. Um, and you know, I was more in the, you know, the Tony Gwynn, you know, Bill Madlock, you know, Rick Monday kind of, kind of area. And, you know, DJ and I are around the same age and we have luck that he played in San Diego and played with a bunch of guys that I know from San Diego. We have Tony Gwynn in common and, you know, we both knew Tony very well and called Tony a friend. So there's always a way to go to get DJ to talk about Tony. I don't ever have to get DJ to talk. I mean, DJ is very comfortable up there. DJ is really good at what he does. I mean, he is an expert at breaking down a play, calling out a player without really calling him out. And his play-by-play is is getting really good, too. And, you know, he's going to do some play-by-play during the games uh, that we're, we're going to broadcast this year as well. So you got to know your guy. I mean, you, you have to know your guy, first of all. And, I mean, I couldn't sit there and tell a story about somebody that Jerry Coleman had never heard of and expect him to be with me. So I kind of had to gear things to things that he would understand or he would know. And, you know, every once in a while, and I'm sure you guys have done this too, you've got to change the players of the game. You know, you got to change the, the people that are in your story to make it fit to what that person is. So I, I've done that a couple of times. But, you know, the, the moral of that is just to get the story and the information out and uh, do it as best you can. And, as, you know, sometimes as quickly as you can, sometimes as long as you can. Let's talk preparation for a few minutes uh, for you. Say if it's a typical Monday night game between the White Sox and the Twins, it's a home game. Kind of what's your day look like from the time you get up uh, to the time you're done? All right, are we talking no pandemic or are we talking just normal? Yeah, let's go no pandemic for right now. <laughs> okay, let's go no pandemic because pandemic is, as we pointed out a little bit earlier, it's kind of, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, uh, kind of wrecking some preparation for a lot of people. But, uh, you know, I, would, I usually try to get to the ballpark uh, anywhere between four and a half and five hours before the game. There's just something to me so serene about being at a ballpark on a game day with nobody in it, knowing that 
pretty soon that the stands are going to be filled and players are going to be showing up. Uh, you know, and I like to formulate my plan kind of during the day. Uh, you know, I'll wake up. Uh, I won't, you know, I'll sleep a little bit just because, you know, maybe we've been on the, you know, the night before or just got back from a road trip or whatever. Yeah, I definitely will get up and, and look at the internet when I wake up. Uh, Twitter's become a really good resource for stuff. If you follow the right people, you got to make sure you're following those uh, of us that have the the blue check marks that uh, were in blue check mark hell the last couple of days. Unfortunately, <laughs> I just got my Twitter account back today, guys. <laughs> it's been, wow. been two days without it. I was going through withdrawal, but um, you, know, you get it's it's important to follow the right people and you know know where to go for your information. Uh, I don't like to overload it, but I like to at least have a grasp on what's going on around the league that day. Um, especially if it's later in the season, what the playoff implications are like, if we're getting toward a trade deadline, what are the rumors? You know, I'm not going to broadcast rumors because that's just not what we do, but I'll get that stuff down to me. And sometimes I'll even jot it down in note form on my scorebook before there's any lineups in it. And I just try not to make sure that my scorebook is filled with all that stuff because, you know, early on in my career, it was interesting because I uh, would always be like this, you know, looking at my scorebook for the next note. And somebody wisely put it to me after seeing me do it. They said, how's the game in your book looking? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, uh, game's not there. Game's out there. I'm like, hmm, yeah, you're right. So, you know, a lot of times now what I'll do is I'll just put a couple of words and it jogs my memory. So if I want to tell a Tony Gwynn story about an airplane flight that I had with him, I write Tony Gwynn airplane or TG airplane. And that way I can go boom. Oh, yeah, Tony Gwynn Airplane. And, you know, now I've got that in my head. Um, you know, there's certain things you're going to have to look down for. I mean, statistics and things of that nature, you're going to have to look away for, for a few moments. But, you know, and, you know, nowadays with the advent of, you know, spin rates and velocity and barrels and, uh, you know, launch angles and things of that nature, I will spend a lot of time on the uh, Baseball Savant site just to make sure that I am kind of familiar with the repertoires of the pitchers that we're facing. Um, sometimes, you know, they're new to the league. Sometimes they're just new to me. And I want to know that, you know, he relies 50% on his fastball. I want to know that you know, 10% more of the time it's a cutter. You know, I want to know what the, the velocity is. And just so I can get familiar with it, calling it, so I don't have to look down to see at 96 miles an hour, that's his fastball. And at 92, that's, that's not a slider, it's a cutter. So that way, if I can look at the, I can, if I can get that enough into my head, I can look at the speed gun and kind of have an idea of what the pitch is that day. Uh, you know, we are, we won't know the lineups at that point, but there are certainly guys that, you know, are having great seasons or somebody that's been in a slump. I can go back and look that up. Uh, I will, in fact, go back and look that up. I want to make sure that I know that, you know, Tim Anderson is 17 for his last 35 and three home runs. Okay. I mean, I'd say that exactly, but, you know, I'll say, you know, he's hitting over 500 in his last, last six games and he's hit three home runs. So I'll try to economize that. I try not to overload with stats because, again, I picture that guy in the car driving, going driving like this, going, whoa, 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 wait, whoa, whoa, what was that? You know, you can't, you can't absorb that when you're driving. So I like to try to get the stats done in the story form to make them bigger or smaller than they actually need to be. Um, you know, so I'll, I'll do a lot of that. You know, once once I get to the ballpark, I scour through the notes, uh, the game notes, the stat packs, and uh, the I, the the biggest thing that teams do in major league baseball now are put out the newspaper clippings from each day so i can go if we're playing the tigers i can go to the, the tigers press box website and look at all the clips and see what the beat writers are saying because the beat writers are the guys that are around there all the time you know i can talk to our broadcasters 
they may have a different view of what the beat writers have because they're that's their job is to kind of be on the beat right so i want to see what they're saying and you know maybe take a couple of notes on that and then maybe go and ask one of them or go ask one of the broadcasters what you know what's the deal on this so i, I want to have information about the other team i don't want to make it you know completely white Sox centric but you know at the end of the day the white Sox are paying me and white Sox fans are listening to me but I think that baseball fans are certainly still interested in what guys are doing on the other team, especially if they're in your division. You know, this year it's going to be all division games. So you want to know if, you know, who got traded or who is not there or who's hurt or whatever. So I I try to make that uh, as big of a balance as I can. And again, I don't want to get too scripted. That was my problem early on because I felt like I had to write everything down. I had to be on every story. I had to be on. You learn as you go on that some of these things are what they call evergreen which means they last. They last. There, there's no date to them. So I could write down a Tony Gwynn airplane story because I want to get to it that day and not have time for it and go, oh, okay, I didn't have time. Yeah, that's, that, that'll hold up tomorrow. There's no dates involved with that. So I can just pick that up and move it over to the, to the next day and not have any, any qualms about doing it. Listen, there's some games that are tough to call because the game stinks or it's just you're not feeling right or your partner's not into it. Those are the days you got to have all that extra material to have there are some days where the game just calls itself because it's a great game. There's a lot of action. There's great defensive plays. There's good strategy. And you don't have to go to any of that stuff. But I would rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. So I'm going to go and prepare like I'm going to need it. And that way it kind of sits in my brain. I'm a visual learner. So I, if I look at it, I need to write it back down so that that, that way it sinks in. Um, people are giving me a lot of crap about the color codes that I use for things and, you know, I have what uh, Ted Leitner used to call mission control in front of me. I've got my computer in one spot. I've got my iPad in another spot. I've got my cell phone here, you know, and he's like, well, what are you going to do? Launch rockets? I'm like, well, no, I'm just going to launch in baseball. now. that's what I'm doing here. You know, three, two, one blast off. Let's go. Um, so, you, you know, you, you can't get too, uh, too crazed with that stuff, but you know, at the end of the day, you're there to call a game. Make sure you're doing that before you do anything else. How important is it to you said not to overload the broadcast, but even on radio to have 10, 12 seconds of nothing, just crowd. Now, this year, it's going to be manufactured nothing. It's going to be fake crowd noise. But on a normal year, on a July summer day, you hear the popcorn vendor. You just hear the rumble of the crowd. How important on radio specifically is maybe just that 10, 12 seconds of not saying anything? It is huge. Because I'm sure you guys grew up listening to games on the radio and you'd flip on this, you'd flip the switch on and you'd turn the radio on and you'd hear the murmur, you'd hear the ballpark ambiance and your announcers aren't saying anything. Yeah, you want to know what the score is, but at the same time, you're like, oh, cool. It's, it's a baseball game. You knew exactly what it was when you turned it on. So I don't ever have a fear of not talking over that stuff because people are smart enough to know that it's not dead air. It's just a baseball game. It's the sounds of the game. And I, I think it's so important, you know, I, when I teach that class in play by play, especially for, ba- for especially for baseball, I say, guys, don't feel like you have to cover every single second of every game with information. You are going to bore to death your listener. Even if you're the best at it, you're going to you're just going to drive them nuts because they're going to be like, oh, my God, mercy, give me a break. And, you know, we, we talk about letting the game breathe. And that's that's pretty much what we mean by saying, all right, just lay out for a second. You know, there's nothing wrong with sitting back. I mean, we're, we're on the air three hours, sometimes three and a half. You know, you need a break too, right? So, you know, just kind of sit back and go, cool. And if there's something funny happening, like there's a couple of, uh, in Chicago on both sides of town, there's a couple of guys that sing 
vendors that are just like very sing-songy and they they have great you know great sales pitches and stuff like that so you hear it and that gives you a whole other topic to talk about because you can hear it and you know the fans at home can hear it why not you know go for it i mean it's again you want to bring as many people into the broadcast and into the stadium with you as you possibly can whether you're at home or on the road and obviously this year it's going to be a lot different than that but still my objective is to make sure make them feel like they're in our booth or in our in our uh in our stadium when a game is going on because that's what we're there for and final one for me how much have you thought of over the years just voice and how much your voice does change throughout the years baseball is a much different pitch it's a much different pace than much other sports is that something you're conscious about in the back of your mind is what your voice sounds like, your pacing, your tempo, all that? Yeah, it's interesting. I was telling somebody this the other day, and people that aren't in this business don't understand it. So you, you go to a road ballpark, and we have a road engineer rather than our, their home guy that doesn't travel. And I put the headsets on, you know, do a test or to, to record a pregame show, and I just don't sound right. You know, you, you guys know when you sound the way you want yourself to sound in a headset – uh, even if it's a different headset, you're, you're thrown off a little bit by that. And it's just like, man, I mean, am I a, am I a, a diva here? Am I, am I a prima donna? I mean, what, what's going on here? But at the same time, you know, that that's where your, your comfort level is when you can hear yourself sounding the way you think you sound. Uh, so that's one. Two, yeah, I mean, uh, doing basketball in the offseason and doing baseball in the during this season is a great thing because I look at baseball and basketball as complete broadcast opposites with the pace. I mean, basketball is a whole lot of action and 10 seconds of story and then more action and then 10 seconds of story and then more action. And then baseball is no action, 10 seconds of action, no action, 10 seconds of action. So believe it or not, my story of telling ability was really birthed during basketball games that I was doing by myself because I had the time in a timeout to tell a quick story. I knew how to start it. I knew how to end it. And I there was so much more I wanted to say, but I didn't have time. So I took that over to the broadcast booth in baseball and I'm like, Oh, okay. Now I can, I got, I got two more outs to tell this story. This is cool. I can take, I can give you all the details, but yeah, you know, it's really important to, to understand, you know, the, the pacing that you present in baseball, especially because of the lulls in the game. Don't put yourself to sleep. Don't be so boring that you're trying, you're, you're calling a golf, a golf match because you're not, it's not, you know, it's not whispering. It's not getting like this. It's, you know, it's it's just talking like you and I are talking right now. I mean, it's just it's it's just two guys having a conversation in a radio booth uh, about a baseball game that's going on, and then you know you got to get into it because something happens. So you have to, you know, we always, I always tell these guys in in our classes that you you should use your voice to your advantage and use it as an instrument, because and what I mean by that is get up when it's supposed to get up, get down when it's supposed to be down, be equal 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 pace when you need to be equal pace, and you can you can tell the guys that know what they're doing it doesn't sound weird going from this to this, you know, because it's, it's all in that same flow. And I, I tell these guys, and it's so hard to, to get into their brains about trying to make a name for yourself with a screaming, ridiculous call. And I'm like, first of all, you're going to kill your voice. Second of all, no one's going to be able to understand anything that you've just said because of all the processing that goes on between your microphone and the airwaves. And yeah, you may get 10 seconds of glory, but you know what? You're a punchline now. You're not you're not uh, being looked at because you're you're making a great call. I mean, the, the boom goes the dynamite guy. I mean, we all know who that guy is right. I mean, we've seen the, the video, but who says that? I mean, the, the, you say it as a punchline. You don't say it as, hey, that was great. You know, I mean, OK. And, you know, I, I don't blame the kid. I mean, he was nervous and whatever happened, happened. But 
at the same time, you try to you try to do it as professionally as you possibly can. Yeah, there are going to be times you're going to get outside of your own vocal ability, and you'll know it. It happened to me last year on an Eloy Jimenez home run uh, at Wrigley Field. My voice cracked a little bit because I I was I forced it a little bit, and you know I went back and listened to the call, and it was a decent call, but. I, I was kind of kicking myself. Like, hey, you, know, you could have made that a lot better. You know, you could you, you didn't have to force that. So even you know, even now after you're doing it a long time, you're you're very critical of things like that, and you and you know the the principles, but sometimes it's just hard to to execute your own avoid uh, your own advice. Yeah, on this, uh, we've talked before about uh, kind of paying it forward in broadcasting. You mentioned some of the uh, work you've been doing with some students, and also you do some really great articles that I encourage everyone to check out on Barrett Sports Media, doing the anatomy of a broadcaster, breaking down why Al Michaels, Jim Nance, Bob Costas, Kevin Harlan are so good. Just how much do you enjoy uh, kind of studying broadcasting in that way and getting to pay it forward to the next generation? It's it's incredible. You know, I mean, there were a lot of guys along the way uh, in my career that that took a lot of time that they probably didn't have or didn't want to take to to make sure that I was taken care of. And you don't forget that. I mean, you do not forget that by thanking them profusely, first of all, and by not taking somebody else under your wing or at least being available if somebody wants to ask you a question or whatnot. So, I mean, that part of it, it, it came pretty easy to me because I was like, you know what? I, I may not be in this position bef- again, and you know I want to. If, if someone likes what I'm doing, I want to help them. I mean, I, I'm, as much as I can. I mean, I can't. You know, I can't do it for them, but I mean, at least I can try to give them a little uh, helpful advice along the way. You know, as far as those articles are concerned, I was amazed at uh, you know, Jason Barrett, who uh, owns the website, kind of said to me, "Why don't you do a, a series on what makes some of the best broadcasters the best broadcasters?" I'm like, hmm, "Okay, this is interesting." So, you know, started uh, started off with uh, with Al Michaels and uh, went to Jim Nance after that and did Bob Costas after that. And then uh, this week's was on, uh, on Kevin Harlan. The first three articles, believe this or not, I got emails and phone calls from, uh, from all three of those guys. Oh, wow. uh, Al Michaels sent me an email that I didn't think it was Al Michaels. So I, did, I ignored it. <laughs> <laughs> and I I ignored it to the point where the next week I got an email from NBC Universal Sports Public Relations saying, hey, Al Michaels is trying to get a hold of you. Oh. I'm like, oh, I, bet you, I guess I better get back to him. So I got back to him and I explained the story to him and got a kick out of it. And then out of the blue, I get an email from Jim Nance asking me for my phone number. And I spent about 15 or 20 minutes talking to Jim Nance from the press box at Guaranteed Ray Field a couple of weeks ago and finding out how appreciative these guys are. I mean, I think of these guys as the best of the best, you know, the creme de la creme of American sports broadcasting, guys that have seen everything and done everything super bowls world series you know olympics i mean you name it and yet these are these guys are still so salt of the earth that they're reaching out to somebody that they don't really know but they know has some credentials in the business nothing like theirs but to reach out and say thanks i mean i I can do that you know if i think i'm too above that well who the hell am i i mean these guys have have done everything and they're reaching out and saying hey you know i really appreciate it my family liked it um, you know, Bob Costas reached out. I'm, I'm waiting for Kevin Harlan. I don't want him to break the streak here. Now, there's a lot of pressure on Kevin Harlan that he doesn't really realize. But I, I kid about that. But it, it's just it was really nice to to see that kind of come back at me a little bit. And, you know, writing those articles has been a labor of love. I mean, it, it's a lot of work. And sometimes I don't have a lot of time to dedicate to it because I'm getting ready for a baseball season. But, you know, to compliment these guys is nothing because these are some of the people that I listened to and looked at and said, okay, I like that. I'm going to try to incorporate that. Or, yeah, this is awesome. Hey, this guy is, is rising to the occasion. I mean, the Jim Nance thing at the at the Masters in 2019 when Tiger Woods 
uh, won the tournament again. He laid out for two minutes and 42 seconds. Do you, how, you know how long two minutes and 42 seconds is in broadcast? You guys know the temptation to jump in there and say something stupid when the pictures are telling a great story at that point. He laid out, and I was like, I'm in admiration. i got to write this down. So, yeah, those, those have been a lot of fun to do, and uh, it's been great to be able to – to, to connect with some of those guys. And it's also been great to connect with a lot of students and, and guys that are doing, uh, you know, minor league broadcasting and, and college broadcast. I mean, I, I love it. I love talking. This is a passion of mine. If you couldn't tell, uh, you know, I love talking about it. And I, if, if someone seeks the help out, I mean, who am I to tell them that they can't get my help? I mean, it's just, if I have the time or when I have the time, I do. Well, we certainly appreciate the time you've given us over this past hour as we're getting ready for opening day for the Chicago White Sox, and we just wish you the best of luck coming up with the Sox this season on the radio, and just thank you so much for joining us. It's been perfect. Thank you. Roger, Kyle, thank you very much for the time. Really appreciate it, and the best of you guys going forward here. All right, thank you. That is Andy Mazur with Chicago White Sox and WGN Radio. Catch him starting next week for White Sox Baseball on the radio, and we'll be back next week with you as well, getting ready for another episode of Broadcaster Hour. Thanks, everyone.